Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And before we jump in today, I have a quick favor to ask. It's something we haven't asked in a long time. But if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, will you please leave us a five-star review? I have this crazy like personal goal. I want to get to 100,000 five-star <laughs> reviews. And I know that sounds crazy, but we're, we're actually pretty close. I've only seen one other podcast that's gone over 100,000. And if you guys like me and you just want to like make me feel good, <laughs> honestly, that's pretty much all it's for. <laughs> I would appreciate it so, so much. It's just a goal that I set and I've been waiting and watching and I thought I should just ask you guys for, you know, what I want. Yeah, it can be our uh, half birthday present. Yeah, let it be. (laughs) Uh, With that request, let's get on to our story. And today is a story of three separate cases that have been intertwined over the years. Our story first starts back in May of 2007. On May 4th, a young 17-year-old girl named Kara is heading off for a normal day of school. Now, her mom offered to drive her, but Kara said, I'm going to walk. I want to smoke a cigarette and I want to like do it by myself. And (laughs) Kara's mom and her stepdad didn't approve of her smoking, but they felt like their control over Kara and her decisions were becoming less and less as she got older. And As she got older, she was just asserting her independence more than just smoking. She'd been doing a lot of things recently that they didn't approve of. They said that her attitude had really changed after she started dating this guy from her school named Kyler. He had since dropped out and they felt like he was driving a wedge between Kara and the family, which, as we've talked about many times before, is something that is one of the first signs of domestic abuse. Kara's family said she became more isolated from them, started skipping school regularly. Um, On her 16th birthday, she'd like run away for a night and not extremely long, again, just one night, but it was long enough for her parents to call the police out of concern for her. She just very much had this attitude at the time that it was her life and she was going to do whatever she wanted with it. But the tides were changing a little bit. Recently, Kara had broken things off with that guy. She had started talking about plans for after high school. She wanted to go to a community college, get her degree. She was planning a future for herself. So that morning when she wanted to smoke and walk herself to school, it was a fight that her mom did not want to pick. She said, listen, I have to choose my battles wisely. A hundred percent. Not long after Cara left home, her mom got a call from her. Cara needed a couple of favors. One, she'd forgotten her school book at home, which she needed for class that day, and she wanted her mom to bring it. And two, she asked her mom if she could wash her uniform because she had to work a shift at Popeye's Chicken after school that day, and she'd forgotten that her uniform was dirty and at home. So her mom agrees to do both. She throws the uniform in the wash before dropping off Kara's books at school on her way to work herself. Now, she didn't actually see Kara when she dropped off the book. She just left it at the office for Kara to pick up. If she would have known what was about to come that day, she probably would have tried to see Kara, to hug her one more time. But that's the thing about tragedy. It's often unexpected, and you never know when your interaction with someone could be your last. 
So her mom went off to work, none the wiser that she would never see Kara alive again. Kara's stepdad, Jim, got home that afternoon. He actually worked really early shifts, so he would always be home before Kara returned home from school. But on this day, Kara didn't return home right after school. And this was a little concerning to Jim because even though it was her life and she was going to do what she wanted, like she said, most of the time, she at least had enough respect for them to let them know what exactly it was that she was going to be doing. He tried calling her cell phone a couple of times, wasn't getting any kind of response. So then he calls Kara's mom, Rhonda, lets her know that Kara hasn't come home and he can't get a hold of her. And when he's on the phone with her, though, he does make one suggestion. Maybe he thinks she got in detention or something. Like if she got caught using her phone or texting, which, by the way, apparently kids can like text in school now. I was just recently in a high school and phones were everywhere. Like back in the day, <laughs> you would get detention for texting in class. So he's thinking that maybe her phone got taken taken away. Maybe she's in detention. So he's like, listen, I'm going to swing by the school. I'm going to check to see if she's there. But by the time he goes to the school, it's like deserted. It's a Friday afternoon. He couldn't find anyone around, much less Kara. His next stop is to Popeye's Chicken, where Kara was supposed to have worked after school. And when he goes by there to talk to the manager, he finds out that Kara isn't there, but was supposed to be. She was scheduled for a shift, but was a no-call, no-show, which was, again, like really unusual for her and is starting to make her stepdad more and more concerned. He waits around the restaurant for a while, hoping that maybe she's just going to roll in late, but she never does. So at around 4.20, he leaves the restaurant and heads back home. In her room is her freshly washed uniform, so he knows that she hasn't even been by to pick that up. Her mom is home by this time to help look for her, and she's just been going through their cell phone records, like their past bills, calling all of Kara's friends, trying to see if anyone's talked to her, anyone has seen her, and not a single person is able to help Rhonda. So Rhonda and Jim decide it's time to call the police and officially report their daughter missing. What they didn't realize, though, is that at the exact same time that they're calling into police, a friend of Kara's is walking into the police station to report her missing as well. But the stories of Kara's disappearance don't quite match up. A deputy is sent out to Carr's home to take an official report. Carr's mom and her stepdad recount the day's events to the officer, but right away they're concerned that he isn't taking it seriously. He knew about the runaway incident the year before, and he says to them, you know, she's probably mad. She'll show back up in a day or two. And they're insisting, like, no, she's never totally out of communication like this. Something is wrong. But the officer says, listen, I'm going to file this report, but wait a day. And if you still haven't heard from her, let us know. Okay, but what was the friend's story? Well, when the friend came in, this person said that they hadn't seen Kara since May 2nd. That's two full days earlier. Okay, that's maybe a little bit weird, but why wouldn't she go to Kara's house first? I mean... It seems like a huge escalation to go straight to the police. I agree. Like, if, if I couldn't find you, I would, like, call your husband and then your sister and then your parents. And I think police thought that it was weird, too, because they ask her, like, why are you coming to us? Have you talked to her family? And she says, no, I don't feel comfortable going to Kara's parents. If she elaborated on why, that was never released to the public. Ugh. But it's something police have in the backs of their mind when Kara's family calls back the next day to say that Kara was still missing and she still had not been in contact with them. 
Police tell the family about the other report that's been filed, and they're so confused. Like, the family is saying, why would this person say she was missing for two days before? Like, we saw Kara on the 3rd, we saw her on the 4th, and this would become a point of contention for years because later on, years later, the police reports would get put out to the public, and according to a news outlet out of Kansas City, Missouri, the police have it documented that they called Rhonda on the 4th about the other missing persons report that was filed, and from what I can gather, the person who filed the report thought Kara was with someone specific. Now, none of the news articles at the time would state an official name. So according to this report, so they call Rhonda and tell her this. And according to this report, she says that Kara, quote, has in fact been missing since May 2nd, 2007. And then she goes on in this report, or according to this report, to say that she thinks Kara is with the suspect willingly and not being held against her will. That's nothing like the initial story. No. And Rhonda says that they never changed their story. She said that that report is a flat out lie. She said, we never thought she was a runaway. Even the same day we called in to report her missing, we were trying to get it taken seriously. And the police are the ones who thought that she ran away. She reiterated that she saw Kara on the third and the fourth. So she would have never said that she was missing or taken against her will on the second. Now, the Belton police chief issued a statement basically saying like, nope, our reports can't be wrong. They're probably misremembering because all of our stuff is written down. It's dated. So we're right. Nothing's changed. That's pretty bold stance to take against the family, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little harsh and it's weird. And you can see how the relationship between police and Kara's family became strained. Like right off the bat. Well, no, again, so that took years to do. This discrepancy didn't come out until like four and a half years after Kara went missing. So in the initial days, her family really was relying on police. But if these reports are true, I just want everyone to understand like what the thinking of police might have been at the time, even if they didn't tell the family like, hey, we made this report that says you say she's a runaway. I think that's the conversation that they're having internally. Because of this discrepancy, I don't think it's surprising that they started looking at her stepdad, Jim, as a prime suspect. They interrogate him. They give him a polygraph test, which he takes willingly and then passes. Now, when police start to look outside the family, they want to get as much attention for Kara as possible. They want her picture on the news, so maybe anyone who might have seen her in the last couple of days would come forward. But... There's a huge roadblock in the investigation. The same night that Kara went missing, a massive tornado storm hit Greensburg, Kansas, which was very close. And that took out like 95% of the town and killed 11 people. So that was all that was filling the news stations at the time. And any attempt to get on the news was just totally kind of thrown out the window. Not getting her picture out was putting the detectives days behind, but there was one local reporter who picked up the case and pushed it forward. He did a story on Kara's case, and he was just as concerned as her parents were. Kara hadn't taken her cell phone, her iPod, or like any of the things you would expect a teenage girl to take if she was going away voluntarily. While this reporter is doing his story, the police are still working to track down leads to determine Kara's last movements. Now, they're able to get the security footage from her school and quickly locate her on it. 
a little before 9.20 in the morning, Kara is spotted in like the common area of her school, walking out of the women's bathroom. She stops in the hallway to talk to another girl for a quick bit, and then she is seen walking out the school's exit doors at 9.19, and this is the last time she was officially seen. No one followed her out, and police don't know if she was going to meet anyone. It just appeared as if Carr was skipping class like she'd done so many times before. Okay, so you mentioned that she kind of had a history of skipping class, right? Mm -hmm. I guess what I don't get is, why would you ask your mom to bring your book if you're just going to leave? Well, from what I gather, she did actually pick up the book from the office, but I don't know anything about her class schedule. Like she could have used the book before she left early, or it could have been for a class later in the day, because I guess it was pretty normal for Kara that she would skip like a couple specific classes in the middle of the day, not the entire day. She just hated a few specific classes and said that the teachers didn't like her. So she would like leave for a couple hours and then come back. So I would assume based on everything we know that she was planning on coming back that day. And this is confirmed when police tracked down the girl Cara was seen talking to that day. She said, yeah, Cara asked me if I'd leave with her, but I couldn't afford to skip class and I thought she'd be back. When police attempt to track down her phone records and find out who she might have met up with that day, they find a connection to someone in Kara's life and a disturbing police report that was filed just days before she went missing that could have been a warning of what was to come. When police get her phone records, they see that Kara called her ex-boyfriend the day that she went missing around 9.13. This was just before she had left school. And then she gets an incoming call from him at 9.20, one minute after she was seen on the camera leaving. Now they had a new last person to talk with Kara, and they wanted to talk to that guy. Was this the same guy, her ex, that her parents said changed her behavior? Yes. So his name was Kyler Eust, and he had a bad reputation. He was into some really bad stuff, not the guy anyone wants dating their daughter. Police find out that not only did he talk to Kara the day that she was last seen, but just days before she went missing, she had filed an order of protection against him. At the very end of April, she had gone to the Belton Police Department to report that Kyler had forced her into his car after work one day. And then in her handwritten statement, she also goes on to say that there are prior instances that he restrained her once he held a knife to her throat and was threatening to cut it. And Kara was apparently supposed to testify against him. But conveniently for Kyler, Kara ended up going missing days before the hearing was scheduled. Oh, my God. Now, in Kyler's initial statement when police talked to him, he flat out lied. He said that the last time he talked to Kara was on May 3rd, which phone records quickly disproved. Now, as terrible as he looks, police interrogate him. They give him a polygraph, which they tell the public that he passes. Though they don't completely clear him, they do their best to keep following down other leads, although those are few and far between. Two weeks after Kara had gone missing, sightings of her get called into the police. On more than one occasion, people report seeing Kara in a town about 40 minutes away. 
The first sighting was at a Burger King, which police sent someone to almost immediately. And of course, as luck would have it, the cameras weren't working that day. Of course not. I know. So the best that they could do was show her picture around. And the people working there said, yeah, like, I don't know who she is, but I definitely have seen her in here before. And she was with a young guy. So they put a composite sketch together. But this guy looks nothing like anyone Kara knew. And Bert, I'm going to send it to you. He looks a lot younger than I was expecting. I know. He truly looks like a kid. And it made me think like, oh, well, if she was with someone like this, like maybe it was willingly. Like he's not the overpowering abductor that I was picturing by any means. Now, the police follow another sighting to a grocery store. Someone says that there was a girl working there that is Kara. And when police get there, they are shocked. The girl working looks so much like her, but it isn't Kara. The more they talk to this young girl, they realize that she has a friend who matched the boy in the composite. And they realize that all the sightings in town have been this girl. And they've been going down a rabbit hole, chasing their tail to nowhere. More and more time goes by, and all of the mounting evidence is pointing to a single theory. Kara didn't leave willingly, and she isn't coming back. Her bank card had been left in her locker. She'd never picked up her paycheck from Popeye's, and the money in her account had never been touched after she disappeared. Just a month out from her disappearance, and leads were beginning to dry up. There wasn't a ton of media attention anymore, just rumors around town about her shady ex-boyfriend. But all that changed on June 2nd, when another case would bring a spotlight to Kara again. Less than a month from the date that Kara disappeared, an 18-year-old girl named Kelsey Smith left her home to go buy her boyfriend a six-month anniversary present. It would just be a quick trip. She was going to pop in and out of a local Target, get him something she'd been thinking about, and then be right home. She had to be right home because Kelsey and her boyfriend had plans at 7.30 that night, and she left just shortly before 7. But 7.30 rolls around, and her boyfriend shows up at her parents' house to pick her up, and she still isn't there. And at first, it's no, like, huge deal. Maybe she's running late. But after another 30 minutes pass, Kelsey's boyfriend and her parents start to worry. Even though she'd called her mom from inside the Target store around 7, no one can reach her on her cell phone now. After another 30 minutes pass, they can't just sit around and wait anymore. Maybe Kelsey was stranded in the parking lot. Maybe she was in an accident. They had to go find out. So they drove the route to Target, expecting to find her car either on the way or in the parking lot. But it wasn't there. No car, no Kelsey, and no sign of where she might be. Now, Kelsey's dad is trying to remain calm. You see, he is actually a police officer himself. He knows what to do. So he starts following like a checklist procedure in his mind, checking up all the places that she could be. And he calls around to local police agencies, seeing if there had been any accidents, seeing if maybe she'd gotten pulled over. But call after call, and he gets the same answer. No Kelsey. 
While he's making these calls, her family goes out trying to look for her. And they're driving around, driving around. And mind you, it's well into the evening at this point. And they spot something not too far from the target Kelsey said that she was going to go to. In the parking lot, just across the street from Target, was a Macy's that was attached to a mall. And in that Macy's parking lot was Kelsey's car. They rush to the car, hoping to find her inside, but it's quickly clear that the car had been abandoned. And what's inside the car just adds to the pressure of needing to find Kelsey fast. Inside, they can see the present that Kelsey bought for her boyfriend and her purse. Why would she leave her car abandoned in the middle of the lot with her purse inside? The obvious answer is that she wouldn't, not willingly. The rest of the family is called in and they tell them about the car and Kelsey's dad insists, do not touch the car. In that moment, he had the wherewithal enough to make sure to say, you know, if something bad has happened, we cannot tamper with potential evidence. But it takes everything in her dad's power not to rip the car apart when he shows up and sees that something is hanging out of the trunk. Mm. Police finally arrive on scene and the crime scene techs are able to open the trunk. And to their relief, Kelsey was not inside, which is good news. Yeah, but then where is she? No one knew. And now, within a month, you have two girls about the same age, about the same build, just 30 minutes from one another, who are both missing. And Kara's family couldn't help but wonder if there was some kind of connection. And this speculation brought more attention to Kara's case at a time when the public was already losing interest. Though the cases looked somewhat similar, I believe they were handled much differently. Kara was treated as a runaway in the first day, whereas in Kelsey's case, within a day, police were pulling surveillance video. They were trying to track her down. The first place they look is at the Target, where she told her dad that she was going. And she, they know she was like on the phone with her mom there, so she had to have made it. They're quickly able to spot her on video. She arrives in the parking lot at 6.54 and then enters the Target store at 6.55. And anyone who's ever been in a Target store knows that there's like a zillion cameras. So <laughs> police are able to follow her every single move. And they keep looking for something to pop out at them. A person who she was talking to, maybe even an encounter with a stranger. But there was nothing. You can see her talking on the phone to her mom. She picked up the present, picks up some wrapping paper, goes to check out, walks to her car, then pulls out of the parking space a few seconds later and drives away. And this was almost more confusing. Like, if nothing happened to her at Target, she planned to come right home after that. Where could something bad have happened to her? Yeah, where did she go? What could have happened? They had no leads. The investigators decide to take one more detailed look at the footage and they get like 10 people in a room together. They blow it up on a screen just looking for anything that stands out. They watch closely and they see the same thing. She shops, she's calm, she checks out, she goes to her car and leaves. But one investigator says, wait, did you see that? Rewind it again. 
Now, the footage we have of Kelsey leaving is hard to see. Her car is in the very corner of the screen, and it's a blurry shot. What they had seen all along was Kelsey put her bags into the passenger side of the car. Then she walks behind the car to the driver's side. And it's here, when Kelsey is on the driver's side, that the investigator spotted something. Just a blur, maybe, to the naked eye. You literally don't even catch it when you're watching the video the first couple of times. But when someone points it out, you can't unsee it. It's a person, presumably a man, who rushes across the parking lot aisle and attacks Kelsey. Within seconds, he has her in the car and they're driving away from the scene. And this is in the middle of a parking lot in, like, broad daylight, right? Yeah, this is taking place in the summer. So at 7 o'clock at night, it is bright outside. The video is broad daylight. No one saw a thing. And the parking lot was packed. No one heard a thing. Oh, my God. She was rushed by someone, forced into her car, and then driven off. I watched an interview with her dad that he did, and I just started weeping when he was talking about this part because he said, this is when I knew. I I knew someone had her, and I couldn't do anything to help her. Mm. Now that police know she was attacked in the parking lot, they decide to go back through the footage a third time and try to determine where her attacker met or spotted her. Like I said before, she hadn't talked to anyone in the store. But now that they knew what they were looking for, he was easier to spot. Their blur that rushed Kelsey was wearing a light top and dark pants. And when they re-look at the footage from inside the store, this time they notice someone in the same clothing, a man. And he isn't following close behind Kelsey, but every time she's in the frame, so is he, keeping his distance. But you can see his eyes following her, watching her, trying to see if she's with someone and determining when he can make his move. Police see that when Kelsey goes to check out, the man leaves the store and makes a beeline for the parking lot, presumably to lay in wait. Now, again, to reiterate the difference in Kelsey's case versus Kara's, This is day two, and we have all of this info. Granted, it's not like we had a ton of video from where Kara went missing. We didn't see anyone pick her up. But in this case, things just seem to be moving so much faster. So they have this image from Target. They get a clear photo of their mystery man. They put it out to the public. And within a day, they have 2,000 tips come flooding in. Oh, my God. Now, people are calling in, you know, suspecting every person they've ever met. And it's not until the next day when they're able to determine what this guy was driving that they're able to narrow down their suspect pool. They spot him He's driving this like blue pickup truck and he arrived in the Target parking lot just seconds before Kelsey. Oh, like not after? I kind of assumed that he followed her. No, the more police look into this, the more it's clear that this might have been a totally random act. Which again, I think is one of the reasons people are wondering like, oh my gosh, could this be connected to Kara's case? If this is just... 
some maniac we have in town who is randomly attacking young girls that he sees. It's not like a, a, a target specific to Kelsey. I think that's why so many people... That's so much more terrifying. Exactly. With the information they now have about the vehicle, they're able to narrow down their suspect pool drastically. And one name that was called in looks like it could be their guy, a man named Edwin Hall. They track him down, and of course, he says he's never met her, doesn't know her. Like, oh, sure, I might have seen her in Target, but we never had any contact. But his story begins to change when they confront him with the fact that his fingerprints, which they took when they brought him in, were found inside her car. Three and a half days after Kelsey went missing, searchers found her nude and lifeless body. She'd been sexually assaulted and strangled, and she was found just minutes from Kara's home, which again made family and the public question even more if these cases were connected. Edwin ended up confessing to Kelsey's murder to avoid the death penalty. He said that day he had just decided to attack someone. And then he saw Kelsey at Target, thought she was really young, made a comment about how he liked her legs, and picked her out of everyone in the store. Never met her before, didn't know her, would have probably picked someone else if they wouldn't have crossed paths. But he swore that this was his first murder and he didn't have any involvement in any other case. Uh, I'm going to call BS on that. Same. One of the investigators on Kelsey's case is like, listen, we haven't been able to link him to anything else. We haven't been able to link him to Kara's case. In fact, we think they're not involved. But every bone in my body, everything in my gut says that this was not his first attack. Wait, so you're saying that they don't think that this guy was involved in Kara's disappearance? So, again, like early days, I think they thought possibly he could have been. And I think for a long time. But then something changed. You know, as police learn more about the victim, they learn more about their perpetrator. They said that they weren't connected. And even though police said they weren't connected, the public continued to speculate that they might have been For years and years, people would look at Kelsey's case and wonder if Edwin was just keeping his mouth shut. Like the police officer said, it seemed very neat. It seemed very planned. It doesn't seem like this was his first time. And they still had another girl that was missing. Now, Kelsey's case renewed interest in Kara's for a while. But just like before, the interest eventually wound down. Here and there, leads would pop up. Like once, two years after her disappearance, there was a sighting of someone who looked like her in New York City. Um, It was a young girl who, like, was homeless. She had amnesia. It seemed like a great fit. But pictures and dental work and DNA all confirmed that it wasn't Kara. Then, at about the three-year mark of Kara's disappearance, there was a massive search done for her. Like, way bigger than anything that was ever done, even at, like, the immediate time after she first went missing. Okay, why now? Well, at that point, no one knew. Police swore that it was just something they'd always wanted to do, but never had the resources to do. And then, like, finally, on this April 7th of 2010, that was, like, the first weekend that all these different agencies could coordinate and search for her. I mean, they had, like, upwards of 230 people out looking for her. Oh, wow. And her parents were happy that this was finally happening, but, like... 
This was 10 times what anyone had done before. Why now and why couldn't this have happened earlier? But maybe it wouldn't have mattered because after three days of intensive searching, nothing was found. And it felt like all hope of finding Kara was lost. Years passed with no sign of her. And to outsiders, it looked like there were no leads. But in a small town, rumors were swirling. And those who listened close would hear the answers about what happened to Kara. The earliest reports of these rumors were in late April 2010. We know for sure that someone went to the police on April 26. It was actually a former roommate of Kara's ex-boyfriend, Kyler. And this person, only identified as the initials NY in reports, contacted police and said that sometime in 2009, Kyler had been talking about Kara. And he said something to the effect of like he had gotten angry with her because she wouldn't love him. And he thought, you know, the age old thing you've seen, if I can't have her. No one can. He then told this person that something bad had happened to Kara. This seems like it might be connected with the search. Like, they aren't that far apart, right? Yeah, so that's, like, the weird thing. So, again, the police at the time swore the search wasn't based off of anything. This official written report is, like, April 26th about this person coming in. The search was done weeks before, like, April 7th. But I have to wonder if, like, police weren't attuned to all of the rumors going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, if there were, like, rumblings and they were, like, let's kind of kick this off in the beginning of the month, see if anything happens. Yeah. And then it kind of came out. Yeah. And then maybe they're like, they're hearing these reports and maybe they like were like leaning on somebody who used to live with him be like, listen, we've heard this report from everyone else. Like we just need to hear it from you. And maybe that's when they made the official report. I think the timing is super strange. If the search was based on that person coming forward, great. If not, it almost looks like nothing came of the person coming forward. Like maybe they went back and talked to Kyler, maybe not, but no arrests were made and there was no break in the case based on this. Then in January 2011, a woman came forward who said that Kyler had confessed to her. She said that he told her he choked Kara and then disposed of her body in the woods. Now, this same person came back to talk to police again just a month later in February and told the same story, but this time with more detail. She said that Kyler described what it was like actually watching Kara take her last breath. He described like falling back onto a chair, watching, just staring at her body for a while before disposing of her in the woods. But Apparently, this third-party confession still isn't enough. Without a body, without some physical evidence, they couldn't arrest him. Now, in August of 2011, one of Kyler's ex-girlfriends comes forward to say that Kyler once told her that he had killed girlfriends in the past and wouldn't hesitate to kill her, too. Now, luckily, this ex ended up pressing charges because in this statement, she also talks about a time uh, when he attacked her and he ends up pleading guilty to domestic violence. Like in this report, there are allegations that he choked her. She was pregnant at the time and he choked her and he had killed kittens. So again, he pleads guilty for this. 
Nothing comes up in Kara's case. Almost another year passes, and another person comes forward in June of 2012 to tell police that Kyler confessed to them as well. And their story is almost exactly the same as the person told before about watching her taking her last breath, leaning back, looking at her, and then taking her into the woods. Now, by September 2015, Kyler is in prison on drug charges, absolutely nothing related to Kara. And police have been trying over and over and over to talk to him, and they go try to talk to him in prison, but he refuses to speak about Kara. But after that police interview, his cellmate said that he was acting super weird and told him that he needed help with an alibi. Sometime in 2016, Kyler is let out of prison, and despite multiple people who had come forward saying he confessed to them, there still wasn't enough to build a case against him, even though, again, in this small town, these rumors are just flowing. He walked free and met a new girlfriend, a 21-year-old girl named Jessica Runyons, and a familiar story would play out. Jessica was the oldest of her siblings, and at the time, she was working as a pastry chef in a retirement home while making plans to go back to college. On September 9th, though, in 2016, one of Jessica's family members reported her missing. Apparently, the night before, she had arrived to a party with Kyler, then left with him, and the two had been arguing. Kyler was said to have been drinking heavily, and concern for her just mounts when the day after she was reported missing, her car was found burning. Now, luckily, though, she was not inside, and... This time, there was someone who knew Kyler's secret. The same day that the car was found, a person only known by the initials J.C. came forward to tell police that he was there when Kyler set the car on fire. Secondhand confessions don't do much, but they had an eyewitness, and that police can work with. They go arrest Kyler, and even if they didn't have the eyewitness— Kyler's appearance gave him away. Oh, wow. Yeah, his face is definitely burned. Right. I mean, at that point, I think everyone's thinking like, oh, my God, they got him. But all they had him on was burning a car, which burning the car of a missing person is pretty incriminating. But he wouldn't confess. He wouldn't give police the location of the bodies so they couldn't move forward on any murder charges. At least not then. In April, a mushroom hunter was scouring the woods when he came across human remains. When police were called out, the skeletal remains were identified as Jessica. And right near her body were a much older set of remains. And that's where Kara had been laying for 10 years waiting to be found. Finally, in October 2017, Kyler Eust was formally charged with two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of abandoning corpses. Kyler is actually set to go to trial this November in 2019. And unfortunately, I think a key witness has been lost. Do you remember... Um, The JC, who I said turned him in for burning the car. We just have the initials. Yeah. Well, news outlets reported that JC could be the initials of Jessup Carter, who is Kyler's half-brother. Jessup 
actually recently died by suicide in prison last September. Now, his death is undergoing investigation, and I don't know what not having him does to the trial. He was supposed to be a key witness because he was the one that witnessed him burning the car, was with him right after. Right. But now they don't have him. So I don't know what that means. I mean, you would hope that they were able to prosecute Kyler with more than just this eyewitness. Like, there has to be more that they have. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken it to trial. Well, they, they, were ta- they took it to trial before he died. But you would think that they, I don't know, maybe would back out on it if that was like their key thing. They they have to have more, right? It's possible. Again, we're, we're easing up on November when his court case is supposed to go to trial. I would be shocked if they dropped based on that. I mean, now that they officially have bodies and no one can say like, oh, maybe both of these girls are out there living their lives. I mean, I think it's easy to prove that he had a history of violence with Kara. I think it's easy to prove he was the last person to talk to her. He was last seen with Jessica the night that she went missing. So I'm sure having Jessup would have been like the nail in the coffin. Mm-hmm. I would be shocked if they dropped. I pray they have enough to go without Jessup. And, you know, I kind of wonder if there are more victims connected to this guy. Like before Jessica was ever murdered, he told his girlfriend, I don't remember that statement, he's killed girlfriends before. Like Plural, yeah. Was he just talking to seem scary or are there actually more people connected to this guy Kara and Jessica deserve justice the same way that Kelsey got justice but in the end the most important thing to each one of these families is that people remember the girls and not the men behind their deaths Mm -hmm. those men didn't define their lives or who they were or the people that they were going to become Kelsey's parents actually became very strong activists because of their tragedy. And they're the ones we can credit for the Kelsey Smith Act, which is actually the law that provides law enforcement with a way to quickly ascertain the location of wireless telecommunication devices. So back in the day of Kelsey's, what they were trying to do, they were trying to ping her cell phone to see where it was. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Verizon was like, I don't, we can't do that. We don't even know if that's an option. Like, you can give us a subpoena, but like, you know, this is uncharted territory. They wouldn't do it. And it's a privacy concern. Yeah, they would only show past locations. So now this isn't even past in all of these states. I thought, I thought everyone could do that. I was totally ignorant. But it's only passed in a little over half the states, I believe. And her family is still working to get that legislation passed in every state. In addition to passing the Kelsey Smith Act, the family has created programs to promote personal safety. Before them, most safety programs were targeted toward children. But like we preach on this podcast, it is so important for adults to be constantly thinking about safety, no matter who you are, no matter mm-hmm. where you are, what time of day, because definitely it could happen to you in the middle of the day in a heavily trafficked parking lot. You can never let your guard down. If you want more information on the safety programs or the Kelsey Smith Act, you can visit kelseysarmy.org. As always, you can visit our website for a link to Kelsey's Army for pictures on this case. That's crimejunkiepodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on social media. We are Crime Junkie Pod on Twitter and Crime Junkie Podcast on Instagram. And hang around. We got a Preppet of the Month story coming at you. 
Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Okay, so today's preppet is a sweet old girl named Daisy, and I am going to ruin everyone's day with her story. Oh, no. (laughs) So this story comes from one of our listeners. Her name is Heather, and she wrote in to us telling us about her preppet, Daisy. And back in 2008, Heather and her husband lived in a college town. And one day, their friend finds this big, beautiful dog just wandering around. Maybe she is a lab mix, but she's really big. Maybe some Great Dane. And we've talked about this before, like, a couple of times, where obviously, Ashley, it was the best decision of your life. But getting a dog in college is not always the best idea. (laughs) No, yeah. I mean, uh, the best thing I've ever done, but the most inconvenient time, absolutely. Right. But evidently, some people are monsters. And at this college in particular... At the end of the school year, there would just be tons of pets flooding shelters, (gasps) being abandoned by students because they had gotten them during the school year. They couldn't take them home to their parents. And it's... It was kind of a thing. And so... Well, you know, so many people, too, I've even heard of where, like, roommates will get a dog together, and then nobody is, like, thinking far enough advance to be like, what happens to the dog when we graduate? Like, I don't know. You are going to fail at life if you're not thinking that far ahead. (laughs) (laughs) That should be, like, class number one your freshman year. Like, how do I think about what's happening next year? (laughs) Right. So their friend finds this dog, and they spend, like, two weeks trying to find its owner. But... Everyone is pretty sure that it's a student who just left it behind. Mm. So the friend brings this dog by Heather's husband's workplace. And he's like, I I don't want to take it to the Humane Society. Does anybody want this dog? And that's around the same time, Heather gets a call from her husband and says, hey, I really need to talk to you. Can you stop by my shop? And she goes, okay, sure. And when she walks in, she sees this big, beautiful black dog and immediately goes full Susan Simpson at CrimeCon and gets on the ground. And is like, <laughs> come here. Um, <laughs> the dog comes right up to her and she's like, oh, my gosh, this dog is beautiful. Whose is it? And everybody's just looking at her. And that's when she realizes that it's her dog. And the dog (laughs) licks her, and she was chosen, and they take the dog home. They're talking about names, and at the very same time, Heather and her husband say, Daisy. And that's how Daisy got her name. Stop it. Had they, like, talked about that before? She didn't say in her email. It's literally they just got a dog one day, and then they also named it Daisy the same time. It's adorable. I'm obsessed. I can't. So cute. So a couple years later, Heather and her family had to move, and they couldn't take their pets with them. And they now have two dogs, Daisy and another one, and two cats. And they were able to rehome Daisy and her kitty mama, Skittles. Skittles chose Daisy as her pup. Um, they were able to put them in the same home. And obviously it was really, really sad, but they felt really good about being able to keep the dog and the cat together and give it to one of their friends to take care of. They eventually were able to get pets in their home approved, but they felt kind of weird going back to their friend and being like, hey, now that you have our pets, can we take them back? Um, so they ended up not taking Daisy and Skittles back, which she wanted to point out that they did immediately get a dog named Sasha, but this is not Sasha's story. This is Daisy's story. Maybe Sasha will get her own turn. Okay. And three years later, Heather's just on Facebook, scrolling around, 
and sees that the friend that she had rehomed Daisy and Skittles to was leaving their life to live life on the road, which sounds like a very interesting story that I actually want to know more about. And she had no plans for the pets. 20 minutes later, guess who's in the back seat of Heather's car? Aww, (laughs) reunited. Yeah, so she calls her husband and he's like, and she's like, hey, I'm on my way home. When I get there, I need your help unloading some stuff from my car. He's like, okay, whatever. So she pulls up. He walks out and sees his big old preppet Daisy, and he just bursts into tears. Oh, my God. I love it so much. So this is great, right? Reunited, and it feels so good. And that's when Heather and her family had to move into a third-story apartment. And remember, Daisy was a full-grown dog when they got her back in 2008. It's 2018. They're thinking she's at least 13 or 14 years old. And... They knew it would be hard on her hips. They knew she didn't be in pain. And that's when they got into the position to purchase their first home. So they're going around and they're like, no stairs, not for our Daisy girl. Oh, I love, I, we did the same thing. Art, but ours is like about the pool. We're like, oh, we can't have a pool with a liner because um, we need Charlie to be able to get in. He doesn't even get in, <laughs> but we definitely like made decisions about our home purchase based on our dog. It's a like totally rational thing to do. Right. So... They're they're like, absolutely no stairs. But we also want a yard. Like, Daisy has never had the yard that she deserves. And they actually just closed on their house back in May. It has no stairs, and it has a big, beautiful yard for Sasha and Daisy. And Heather believes that that is what Daisy was waiting for. Because on July 10th, Daisy passed away. Why why would you do that to me? I thought this was like a... I told you it was a sad one. I thought the sad part was when they had to, like, leave each other. No. The sad part is Daisy is now buried in her big, beautiful backyard, surrounded by daisies on a hill. Oh. Well, I'm happy she got to, like, be reunited with her her family. I know. She got to spend her last years with her family, and her family got to spend her last years with them. I mean, it's... It's a sad one, but there's so many high points in her story. I couldn't let it go. I know. But let this like let this all serve as a lesson for people in college who cannot commit to owning a dog for the life of a dog, which I'm praying to God is 30 years. Just go volunteer to shelter. There are so many dogs that need to be walked at shelters like. Oh, I just can't. Or even foster foster dogs for shelters. Like it's so important. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, we can't stress it enough. And guys, in the spirit of that, there are so many good shelters out there. There are so many dogs that are available for adoption or for fostering. We're going to have one posted on the Puppet page as well. Um, we're, we're, You guys know this. We're super passionate about this, too. It's true crime and Puppets. Yeah. <laughs> true crime and Puppets. Yeah, go check it out if you have room in your home for a forever buddy or even just for a foster buddy. Um, do take the time to look and, and open up your home and your heart. 